Hi everyone, welcome back to this week's podcast. This is John, and this is no Alex. All right, there's no Alex today because life has been really, really crazy for both of us. We didn't even have time to meet each other. Can you believe it? Yeah, just didn't have any time to record for the past few weeks. It's been really, really crazy here in Ontario because the province is trying to reopen, and the businesses and restaurants are just like doing. They're under a lot of stress, and people are kind of on edge. You know, so life and work have been really, really imbalanced, and it's kind of whack for both of us. Without further ado, actually, let's talk about today's case. It's really freaking whack. I can't believe it's already mid June, and June is the Pride Month. So I want to say Happy Pride to everybody. And also, apart from the happy time that everyone's celebrating, I do want to mention that we must not forget about you know the struggles the community had gone through. Thus, I want to bring some cases to everyone's attention. Today's case, being one of them, is going to be a very, very crazy story, and we're it's so long. I took a deep dive into this case, and I feel like you know what? One episode is not enough, so I'm going to divide this into two parts.、Uh, for the first part today, we're going to talk about how this guy got caught. You know, the last victim, and the whole course of, investig- of investigation. How this guy eventually got caught, and the second story, which is the the second part of the story, which is going to be my next episode, I'm going to talk about the trial proceedings of his crazy trial and also his life story, and also some social issues that's reflected by this case. All right, without further ado, let's get into today's story. I've researched a lot of stories in true crime cases so far. I've never come across anything like this before. It's so crazy. I can't seem to wrap my head around it, because I took a deep dive into this guy's personal life, and I watched so many documentaries about this guy, about this case. I don't want to spare any detail. I want to tell you everything today. We're talking about the Bruce MacArthur case. This guy is from Toronto. And he's listed as one of the most infamous serial killers in Canada, because we all live in Canada and we live in Toronto. So this one hits really, really damn close to home, and I'm actually really traumatized after the research. So you be your own judge. You tell me if this is creepy enough. Okay, let's get started. The story happened in 2017, on June 26th, literally one day after Pride Toronto. Just a side note for all of our listeners: Pride Toronto is the largest Pride celebration in Canada for the LGBT community. Andrew Kinsman, a 49-year-old gay man from Toronto, disappeared from Cabbage Town and was last seen in the area of his residence on Winchester Street on the evening of June 28th. Learning that no one had seen Andrew for a couple of days, Ted Healy. And some other friends of Andrew's went to the office and gained access to his apartment. After entering the apartment, they found no signs of disturbance. Though strangely, Andrew's seventeen-year-old cat was out of food and water and was left alone in the apartment, which is very, very odd for a pet owner. Like you wouldn't leave your fur baby like without any proper care, right? The group reported Andrew's disappearance to the police the following day. Andrew 
was openly gay and had deep roots in the gay community in Toronto. To his friends and family, Andrew was actually considered a fairly stable and responsible man. He certainly wouldn't just get up and leave without notifying his friends or family. Certainly not without his cat or his prescription meds, like it makes no sense. Another weird thing that the police have discovered was that Andrew was normally fairly active on social media. However, his phone was turned off the day he disappeared. As the police was looking into this case itself, they realized another gay man disappeared from the same neighborhood just a month prior to Andrew's disappearance. This is very, very odd because suddenly two men disappeared from the same neighborhood and they have the similar lifestyle. The police decided that those two disappearances are definitely linked to each other and they're definitely related and something sinister definitely happened to both of them. At the end of July 2017, a month into the police investigation, the Toronto Police Service created a new task force named Project PRISM to investigate the disappearance of Andrew Kinsman and the other man, Salim Essen, who practically disappeared around the same time in the same area. The task force was also looking for any links with the unsolved disappearances investigated under Project Houston. Some of you might be curious about the name Project Houston. What is it? It is a task force launched back in November 2012 to initially investigate disappearance of Skanaraj Navratnam, a resident in Toronto who disappeared in the neighborhood of Church and Wellesley as well. Skanaraj was suspected to be murdered because of a tip that came into police attention. According to this tip, Skanaraj was actually deceased at the time and he was already cannibalized by a local cannibal here in Toronto. This tip sounds super odd to me, because, because how did you know this guy is already killed and cannibalized without knowing any detail or like, you know, with no proof, right? However, to the police, for a cold case, a crazy tip is better than no lead at all. After looking into this tip, the police were able to trace down to a guy residing in guess what country switzerland it's not even in canada the tip came all the way from switzerland the police officers decided to take a trip all the way to switzerland to personally meet this anonymous tipper his name is marcus he used to work for the government in switzerland after leaving the job with the swiss government mark kind of lost the direction in his life he didn't know what he was supposed to do. When he was working, he was contributing to the society, and he had the sense of confidence. However, just like many others, people oftentimes tend to have, have a hard time adapting to the new lifestyle after their retirement. Mark, being one of them, also went through a dark patch in this life. He suffered from multiple mental illnesses at the same time, and at one point, he thought about committing suicide. Just when he was thinking about ending his life, he realized there's actually a group of people out there who are eyeing on the forbidden meat. Yes, we're talking about the cannibal community. He started thinking that instead of killing himself, he could be a human sacrifice for one of those cannibals out there. That would be a super awesome and unique experience. Well, I'm just being really sarcastic right now. At this point... He signed up on a cannibal website called Zambia Meat and started chatting with people on there. This is where 
Mark starts to realize, wait a second, Han- like cannibals are real. It's not just like in the movies. They are real. Some people on those websites actually hurt people. And that's where he actually decided to take a turn from wanting to end his life to finding a new mission, which is to hunt down those cannibals who actually hurt people in real life. I personally find this really fascinating, and I also did some research, and here's what I found. Oftentimes on those websites, there are two different types of cannibals, or I call them cannibals. Um, There's one time they're called haulers, and there's another type they're called hunters. You might ask me what they are, right? Usually, haulers are the ones who try to convince people that they're hunters. They will make up stories of them, you know, consuming the forbidden meat of hunting human, doing all, all that jazz. However, they've never done anything. But the hunters are usually the dangerous ones. Um, they're the ones the police are after. They are the ones who actually do it. Another fun fact that people have to understand is cannibalism is not a crime. At least here, not, not here in Canada or the States. It's not a crime. Normally, cannibals will be charged for causing bodily harm towards others or murder or manslaughter during the process of getting the forbidden meat. However, consuming the flesh of another person is never a crime. And Mark is absolutely amazing. Ever since he signed up with the website, he had helped police from different countries to actually hunt down some of those hunters. One of them had been you know, a guy from a small village in a different country. Mark had been connecting with this guy, and this guy shared some really disturbing pictures of human body parts. And, you know, obviously, to me, when I first see those pictures, I'm either like, yeah, that's not real. That's probably just beef. But, well, Mark knew for a fact that those are human body parts and those are human meat because he actually saw severed off limbs from a female body. Mark reported this to the police right away. He also provided a lot of information to help the police trace this guy down, including his chat history with this guy, you know, his locations and also the pictures that he shared on the website. Eventually, the police were able to trace this guy down and successfully captured this hunter from the website. This time, Mark was actually onto another person. He was connecting with another cannibal who is residing in Canada. We later found out this guy's name is James. James lives in a small town outside of Toronto called Peterborough. At the time, he was chatting with multiple guys on the website. According to James... He was chatting with the boy and he had been sending money to this boy who is living in Colorado at the time. They made an agreement that once this boy turns 18, this boy will be willingly submitting his body to James for him to consume. According to James, he also consumed, you know, human meat here in Toronto before. Later on, this guy was deemed to be just a hauler. He had never done anything. However, in the meantime, the Toronto Police Service was working closely with the police in Colorado trying to lock this guy up. Eventually, with all the evidence they collected, they were able to charge James Brunton with child porn distribution because he had lots of pictures, nude pictures of children. Eventually, James Brunton was sentenced to 10 months in jail and two years probation. So it turned out this whole cannibalism tip was not real. And however, James Brenton was the suspect zero 
deemed by the Toronto Police Service for the disappearance of Skandaraj Navratnam. Just when the task force thinks that, you know, this whole disappearance of Skandaraj is just a coincidence, he probably just gets up one day and decides to leave. They discovered another two missing persons cases, and all three of them can be linked by geography and lifestyle. Abdul Fazi and Majid Kahan. Just like Skandaraj, both men are middle-aged immigrant from South Asian descent who disappeared from the same neighborhood of Church and Wellesley between 2010 and 2012. At this time, an anonymous tip came in, informing the police that a guy named Bruce Mark Arthur was in a relationship with Skandaraj. With this tip, the police instantly invited MacArthur into the police station for an interview. During the interrogation, MacArthur revealed that he knew both men and regularly interacted with Skandaraj at a local gay bar. In the meantime, he also admitted to employing Kahan, with whom he had broken off a sexual relationship. However, Project Houston concluded with no evidence to link the disappearances that a crime had been committed were to identify a suspect. Eventually, the case went cold for good. In April 2014, the task force was dismissed. Good thing though, because of the interrogation with Bruce MacArthur, he was on the police radar ever since. Even though there was no evidence to prove that Bruce MacArthur was the killer or he had anything to do with the disappearances, However, his interaction with the police officers left a really bad impression to them. And they knew this guy is not that simple. Something's going on. They just didn't have any evidence. Now let's take a look at Project Prism. The task force was led by Detective Hank Zinga and three previous members of Project Houston. The two disappearances investigated under Project Prism were oddly similar to the disappearances happened years ago investigated by Project Houston. With rumors spreading around, the whole gay community in Toronto panicked, fearing that there is a serial killer spying on the community in Toronto. Throughout this tough time, there were three counts of separate murders happening to the LGBT members in the same neighborhood. On December 8th, Toronto Police Service Chief Mark Saunders had to hold a news conference to clarify that the, th the deaths of the three LGBT members were completely unrelated to the disappearances of Andrew Kinsman and Salim Essen. They did not believe that there's a serial killer on the loose. Throughout the course of the investigation for the two disappearances this time, Andrew Kinsman's disappearance was central to the creation of Project Prism because of a lead obtained at the end of July. A crucial piece of evidence was recovered because Andrew's disappearance had been reported within 72 hours, after which evidence could have been lost. The police found Bruce on Andrew's calendar for June 26th, the same day Andrew was last seen. The surveillance video of Andrew's building also caught a person matching Andrew's appearance, approaching a red vehicle on the same day. The video did not show a license plate or a clear picture of the driver. However, the chrome sighting identified it as a 2004 Dodge Caravan, and there were more than 6,000 similar models in Toronto 
but only five were registered to someone named Bruce. Of those, the only 2004 model belonged to no other than Bruce MacArthur. By late August 2017, they matched the van from the surveillance video of MacArthur's apartment. But it was no longer at his residence. That's rather convenient. On October 3rd, police officers arrived at Dom's Auto Parts in Curtis, Ontario. Just a fun fact: this Curtis is spelled as C O U T I C E. When I first saw that, I thought it's Cortis or Cortis, but turned out it's Curtis. Oh my God, it's super weird in Ontario. Um, yeah. So this place is about seventy kilometers northeast of Toronto. There were canvassing businesses for MacArthur's two thousand four Dodge Caravan, which the owner actually confirmed that he had purchased on September sixteenth. The police found it intact and had it towed away. They also copied surveillance video of MacArthur's visit at the shop. The owner also said that the officers later told him. That they have found trace amounts of blood in the vehicle, the blood was identified as Andrew Kinsman's. In November, cadaver dogs were brought to Mallory Crescent residence in the Lee Side neighborhood of Toronto. MacArthur had an arrangement to attend the owner's yard in exchange for storage space in their garage for his landscaping equipment. The dogs did not indicate any human remains. However. A camera was actually installed in the garage to monitor. They also obtained the log of MacArthur's key fob for his apartment, with this and the tracking warrant for his cell phone. They finally were able to build a timeline of the day Andrew went missing. DNA evidence from the van matched Kinsman and Essen, which allowed the investigators to obtain a general warrant for MacArthur's apartment on December fourth. Police then covertly entered his residence and cloned his computer's hard drive. On December fifth, after consulting with the community, Project Prism issued a warning about dating apps, urging users to practice caution when meeting people unknown. In the December eighth news conference, Project Prism investigators said they had completed sixty-two witness interviews, twenty-eight judicial authorizations, and assigned. Three hundred and eight actions, of which two hundred twenty-five had been completed. The police had also conducted searches, utilizing resources from the mounted and canine units. They said they had no evidence to link the disappearances. The investigation picked up in January twenty eighteen, when Detective Enzinga noted that they had many fifteen-hour days and a seventy-two-hour stretch. Of intensive investigation in mid-January, on January seventeenth, two pieces of major evidence came to light directly connecting MacArthur to the disappearances of Salim Essen and Andrew Kinsman. A partial download from MacArthur's computer, which was going through forensic analysis of deleted files, yielded post-mortem pictures of the victims that day. Round-the-clock surveillance was put on MacArthur, with instructions that MacArthur should be immediately arrested if observed along with others. On January eighteenth, twenty eighteen, the police officers surveilling MacArthur decided to apprehend him shortly after they saw a young man entering his apartment, 
believing that the man's life was at stake. A source told CTV News that the police officers found the young man restrained on the bed when they entered the apartment. The man was shaken, but not injured. Later, we learned that the man goes by John, had arrived in Canada from a Middle Eastern country five years earlier, was married, and had not told his family about his sexuality. He had met MacArthur through Growler, a gay dating app, and said that they had met for sex several times before. He had agreed to keep his relationship with MacArthur a secret, and let himself be handcuffed to MacArthur's steel bed frame. MacArthur put a black bag over his head and tried to tape his mouth shut before police officers interrupted him. The officers had a search warrant for the apartment, obtained after gaining blood evidence from his van. Police seized electronic devices from the apartment, including five cell phones, five computers, three digital cameras, and about a dozen of USB flash drives. Evidence found in MacArthur's apartment shortly after his arrest prompted investigators to charge MacArthur with two counts of first-degree murders and presumed death of Andrew Kinsman and Salim Essen. Their bodies had not been found, but police said they had a pretty good idea of how they died. There was enough evidence for murder convictions even without bodies. A source told CTV News that the photographs of alleged victims found at MacArthur's residence led to the charges. At the time of his arrest, Detective Nzinga said that the police believed that he was responsible for the deaths of other men and were not most concerned with identifying these victims. Other regional police services had also joined to trace down MacArthur's whereabouts and his online activities. By the end of January, Nzinga said they were investigating an alleged serial killer who had concealed evidence by burying them across the city. He described the ongoing case as unprecedented, with hundreds of officers involved and 30 properties to be searched. The OPP, the province's forensic pathology services, and the Center of Forensic Science were aiding with the searches of MacArthur's apartment and the Leaside property. Additional charges were laid, and at the end of February, the investigation was expanded to outstanding murder cases, hundreds of missing persons cases, and sudden death occurrences, coordinating with other Canadian and international forces. At this phase, police had received tips from around the world, including countries where MacArthur had vacationed. Apparently, MacArthur had been trying to cover his tracks by using payphones instead of cell phones and avoiding areas with surveillance cameras. He had been targeting vulnerable men who were closeted and did not have a fixed address. At the same time, the Toronto Police Service Homicide Squad's cold case unit also started paying attention to this cold-blooded serial killer. They even traced back to the murders happened between 1975 and 1978 when MacArthur was just in his early 20s. However, nothing evident was found during the revisits. The investigators also revisited the three properties when the weather gotten better in April, with intensive search team and cadaver dogs. Between July 4th and 13th, 20 investigators conducted excavation in the forested ravine behind the Leaside property. They began sifting through a large comp compost pile, then proceeded with the guidance of trained dogs and a forensic anthropologist. 
They collected human remains almost every day of this search. On July 20th, it was announced that the remains belonged to Kahan, and other victims have been identified. One of the most shocking thing about the discoveries is that some of those bodies were decapitated and they were buried in his planters, and they found the planters in the garage and surrounding areas. Finally, after years of investigation, they finally found the missing men's bodies, and well, they were all dead. However, at least they were they were found, and the killer was actually captured. Thank God. Uh, there you have it. This is the whole investigation process of the Bruce MacArthur case. Next week's episode is gonna be kind of sick and twisted because I do want to tell you the life story of Bruce MacArthur, and you can kind of have a fuller picture of who this guy is, and you can kind of. Well, I guess try to understand his psychology. I honestly, I don't really know how to phrase myself. Hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. I'll see you guys next week.